0: Welcome to Positive Talk Radio. We're glad you're here. I'm Kevin McDonald, your host for this grand adventure, and I thank you for joining us. You see, our mission is to create a positive personal connection to all things with courage and love. We invite terrific guests, interesting topics, and great conversation, all in a fun, entertaining way. And we always manage to learn something, too. So I hope you will stay right where you are for this episode of Positive Talk Radio. And welcome, everybody, to Positive Talk Radio for today. This is also my... (coughs) Um, Bless you, sir. Mm -hmm. And uh, today we have, uh, of course, Eric Hall is with us on a Wednesday. Normally, this is the lunch club. But we have a very special guest today that we wanted to talk to. And um, we also have an announcement to make that Eric is going to take over the lunch club and is going to be the driving force behind it. Uh, I believe starting uh, in a week after next. And, uh, or next, no, maybe next week. Next week, um, yeah. I mean, next week, yeah. And so, Eric, congratulations. I think it'll be great fun for you.
1: Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. It's always fun to chat and spend time with you and everybody else. We've got terrific guests. I'm really looking forward to talking to Greta. What, a, what an amazing story.
0: You know, it's interesting. And uh, as a prelude to talking with, with Greta, I just have to say that there are some times in our lives when something happens that um, is on the face of it, on, on the whole, is something horribly negative. But the outcome that can come from it can be extraordinarily positive. And this is one of those stories. And uh, I'd like to welcome Greta uh, McLean to the show. Greta, how are you today? I'm doing wonderful. How about you? We're doing just awesome. Had an opportunity to, and I, I really encourage people to go uh, read it, and you'll be able to read it on the Mind Independence Report blog which is the stubbornness of words and it's a story about what greta went through and uh, she was trying to write it down and it just wasn't coming and then it did and then it changed uh, the face of her entire life have i misrepresented that in any way
2: no sir i think you're spot on
0: and it was uh, it was something that you that that you felt that you needed to do but first of all you were a police officer for a long time um what drove you into that
2: My father was a police officer, and I grew up, I was a daddy's girl. I grew up admiring him, um, always was, you know, trying to, you know, be like dad. There's actually a few pictures when I was pretty young, even as young as four or five, wearing his uniform shirt, which, of course, was more like a floor-length dress for me, his, his hat, Um, things like that, and had always dreamed that I would be just like dad. And I had the opportunity. I started off um, after college. I worked at Vanderbilt University uh, Police Department, and it was a great learning experience. Started off as a dispatcher, which wasn't exactly what I was looking for, but it was very good experience. And from there, I was fortunate enough to be in the top three, uh, scoring the top three on the test to become a commissioned officer, and work patrol on on campus. And after my father had been retired from the department a few years, and after I had gotten married and my name had changed, I applied for the Metro Nashville Police Department and was fortunate enough to get in. Mm. And okay, I had. I to, go I'm ahead. sorry. I was just going to explain because of how I worded that I waited the way I did because part of what I admired about my father was the fact that he didn't have any connections. He, you know, was lucky enough to join the department um, and worked his way up from a patrol officer up to major. And I wanted to do it the same way. I wanted to, you know, get what I got or not get, you know, something because of the work I did on the quality of my work. So I wanted my name to change so that people wouldn't know who I was and, you know, days off, a car, promotions, whatever I got was based on my ability and my skills and my work and not because of who my father was.
0: How did you like being a police person?
2: I loved it. I really did. Um, It's obviously a difficult job. It's much more difficult now, um, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. There was a lot of times where it was really scary, um, very frustrating, but there were those times, and sometimes the the frustrating, the boring, the scary is the majority, but those times where you know that you really have made a difference in someone's life, you have helped them, then it makes, you know, the other 75 80 percent whatever it definitely makes it worthwhile and you go home feeling like yeah this is why I'm doing the job.
1: Sounds like you're like bred into the job like uh, this was something from a young kid you were you were born to do.
2: Yes sir. Part of what I loved about law enforcement was they didn't necessarily know that I was always listening, but, you know, sometimes some of <laughs> dad's friends would come over and they'd be telling, you know, war stories and, and things like that. And, you know, there were times like, you know, with a lot of jobs, it was, you know, let's try to outdo the other with the most gruesome story or something like that. Yeah. But you also, or I also would over- overhear some of the good stories, you know, and, Seeing the joy that it brought, you know, dad talking about it and, and, and the other guys that I'm like, yeah, that's that's something something I want to do.
1: See, this is something that we don't hear enough. And this is what's so interesting, fascinating, really, about police officers that you guys see so much of the darkness of humanity on a day-to-day basis. And I I love the fact that you've mentioned a couple of times that you've had an opportunity to help people, and and it made your day. Um, I know what you went through. I know where the story is eventually going to lead to. But I would love to hear a couple of really nice stories.
2: Sure. Um, A couple of them came. right at the beginning of, of my career. I was still in my first two months of training with a training officer after getting out of um the academy. And one of them was on the day I'm definitely dating myself here. It was on the day the first Rodney King verdict came out. Oh and- yeah. Yeah, all heck was breaking loose in, obviously, in, in L.A. and in New York, Chicago, you know, all across the country.
1: And you were down in
2: I was in I was in Nashville, Nashville, and our zone was in a predominantly uh, African-American community. And our sergeant, you know, called the entire district together and said, you know, the verdict's come out, you know, everything's peaceful here. We want to keep it that way. You know, I know y'all do your job the right way, but don't use any force unless you absolutely have to. We don't want, you know, to create a spark. And okay. It wasn't five minutes after that, that we got a call of a gentleman at one of the churches, local churches on Jefferson street. In Nashville who was threatening to commit suicide and my training officer and I went and as soon as the the gentleman saw us he took off running and ran into his apartment which was just across the street from the church and he was making lots of threats uh threatening to to hurt us um threatening to to hurt himself and <clears throat> excuse me and I was had gone to the front and my training officer had gone to the back and the gentleman came back to the front um, and I started trying to talk to him uh, through the window the window was open and again I had been out of the academy maybe two weeks so you know I'm like please somebody come help me because I don't know what I'm doing and just sitting there trying to talk to him keep him calm as best I could Sergeant showed up, and um, by then, other officers had showed up to to watch the back. And and my training officer had come around too. But the sergeant was like, No, you go ahead and keep talking to him, you've developed a rapport. And I could still picture my face, I'm sure, when I looked at him. And I said, You gotta be crazy. (laughs) And he's like, No, you're doing good. And it took about three and a half hours. And I wished. I knew what I said to him. And to this day, I don't remember anything that I said. Um, But he agreed uh, to come out uh, voluntarily, uh, allowed me to handcuff him, gently put him in the car, uh, got him to the hospital for evaluation, and everything was fine. Um, The Violence. Yeah. And he told me, uh, once we got him to the hospital, he's like, "I'm glad it was you that showed up," he said, because I think if it had been anybody else, I would have killed myself. Wow. And that—that that was when I was like, "Yeah, I made the right decision to to go into this profession," oh. and for it to happen so early was, you know, yeah. amazing.
1: Yeah. So that'll that, lock you—that'll lock yourself into a career or something like that.
2: Knowing Absolutely. you belong there,
1: somebody said something like that to you.
2: Yes. yes, yeah. That's
1: terrific. Well, you do have that demeanor. You're very easy to talk to.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah.
1: You have a warmness about you that really comes across.
2: I try. Um, I'd like to think that I'm down to earth. Um, sometimes I talk too much. <laughs> yeah. My father—the nickname that my father gave me was Yaki Duck" when I was a young child. So that tells you something. Yaki Duck. duck.
0: That, that comes directly out of the mouth of a gentleman from the south. Yeah,
2: exactly.
1: That's southern
2: gentleman, there. Sure, yes, yes. absolutely. So,
0: how long were you a police officer?
2: Total of twelve years.
0: And somewhere along the line, in that something bad happened. Uh, would you like to talk about that a little bit? Uh,
2: yes, sir. The initial thing, um, well, the reason I left the department is I'm actually a two-time survivor of sexual assault. The first time was my junior year of college and I was a student employee at the rec center and we had finished up softball games and I was putting equipment up. And after I finished that, I was going through the from the fields, uh, through the hallway at the racquetball court to go into the office and check out. And a university employee cornered me in the hallway, um, pulled me into a racquetball court and forcibly fondled me and kissed me. And luckily I was able to get away. Uh, another student employee had come back into the building because she had forgotten to clock out. So he was, he let me go. Um, and that, I, you know, 21 years old, i probably didn't handle, didn't really have the tools really to, to handle it the way it probably should have been handled. Um, but I did finally report it. Um, the, my supervisors were excellent and very supportive. The university as a whole, unfortunately was not. Um, but anyway, that stuck with me and my had gone from Vanderbilt to Metro Nashville and worked my way up to a detective in the sexual assault unit. And I decided to try to become a detective because of my experience. I thought that that would give me a little more insight and help me become a better detective um, because I had been uh, a victim of sexual assault and loved the work. Um, But there was one occasion where the lieutenant, um, we were discussing a case, and he he had said, he was kind of listening to me, but then he's like, okay, wait a second. He's like, yes, she said no, and I understand she said no, but she went inside with him and, you know, went and sat, you know, on the couch with him and let him... Take her shirt off. So, yeah, she kept saying no, but she was really saying yes. So, you need to close the case. And that conversation triggered, um, even though it was a totally different situation, really triggered um, undealt with emotions and trauma from my first assault. And that's when I decided to leave the department. Um, and then later on, my second assault was in 2017, and <clears throat> excuse me, I was had stopped at a truck stop, used the restroom, get something to eat, and as I was walking uh, through the parking lot, I was grabbed. Um, tried my best to fight him off, unfortunately, I I couldn't, and I was raped. I'm sorry. I am too, but it's, it's one of those things where you don't think, even though I had been victimized, you know, in college, I didn't think after being a police officer, you know, we have a lot of training in defensive tactics and I had been very fortunate in my career that, you know, for the most part I could handle myself. You know, there was a couple of fights I lost, but, you know, luckily we all came out, you know, okay, without serious injuries. And I felt that because of my training, I should have been better at defending myself. And like a lot of victims, even without that experience, they blame themselves. And I fell into that trap too. I blame myself. I felt again, like I should have been able to fight better. I should have somehow sensed that something was going to happen. Um, And I felt ashamed that I couldn't keep him from raping me. And that continued to 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 eat at me. And I was, in all honesty, afraid to, even though I was a former police officer, I was afraid to report it. Um, because I didn't believe that, you know, a police officer or a former police officer could be raped. So I felt like, well, if I didn't believe it could happen why would anyone else believe me so that that shame and and you know guilt and felt i lost my sense of self-worth as well and i continued to fall deeper and deeper into depression and mm-hmm. tried to you know Use what tools I had to to try to fight it off and and get better and deal with it, but again, I was so embarrassed and ashamed that I had, in my opinion, at that time, let myself uh, be raped that I didn't want to tell anybody or talk, you know, talk about it, and that secret just continued to weigh really heavy. And after a few months, I was like. I can't do this anymore. I just can't do it anymore. And I decided that I was going to end my life and began writing goodbye letters. And it was the last goodbye letter that I was writing that words were not coming easily. Didn't Couldn't get down what I was trying to get across. And after probably an hour of struggling, I finally just Set it aside and thought, you know, I've got to get this done, but, you know, it's not working. Let me just take a break. And I logged into Facebook for the first time in probably a week or so. And I'm just kind of halfway, not really even paying attention, scrolling through my Facebook feed. And I started seeing a hashtag and I'm like, what is this? You know, I hadn't, I hadn't been watching television. I, kn- I had no idea what it was. And it slowly started dawning on me what it meant. And it was the Me Too hashtag. It was two days after Alyssa Milano had first posted Me Too on Twitter. And I was really struck by the number of friends who were posting Me Too as well people that I had no idea that they had gone through something similar to me. And I was also very struck by the fact of how many people, you know, even strangers were saying it. And it dawned on me, it's like, here's people a lot like me who have been through a similar situation and they're still here. They found some way to continue to put one foot in front of the other and take it day by day. And if they can do it, I'm going to see if I can do it. So my mantra for the next couple of months probably was, let me get through today and I'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. And sometimes I would say that so, that to myself probably a hundred times a day it felt like. But it it worked. I'd get through that day and then when I wake up the next morning, I'd say the same thing and i continue to to get through day by day and it also something that struck me when i was looking at at all those hashtags was the fact that it was one person posting me too on twitter just one person being willing to speak up and admit that they had been sexually assaulted or harassed that led to over i know now over 9 million other people saying it. And it was because of her, Alyssa Milano saying it first, and then the people who came after that, that literally saved my life. Because if I hadn't have seen that, I'm sorry, if I hadn't have seen that, I would have killed myself that time. My
1: gosh. That is just, uh, that is... Now, isn't there a statistic like one in three women have experienced sexual assault?
0: No. It's two and it, three and four.
1: Three, three, three fourths of women have it. Oh my God, at it's, one time
0: or another, have experienced sexual assault or and or rape, and it's also as you found out with the officer, with the lieutenant, with the lady that was uh, sitting on the couch. That uh, that uh, a lot of times people discount what happens to 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 women, and they say, well, she was wearing too tight of a pair of pants or yeah. she was her shirt was too tight or she was uh, flirting too much or and uh, and that kind of thing so they justify it that way too
2: yes
1: i think that's probably the well that is i think the real crime not only is it you know a physical crime but the emotional crime is huge too and it's so much about dominance and taking away power
2: and you someone. hit the nail right on the head and a lot of people don't understand that that they think of sexual assault as being a desire thing. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, they can't control their urges and sexual assault isn't about sex. It's very similar to domestic violence. It's about power and control. Mm
0: -hmm. And
2: that's something that we, you know, I try to get across and my organization tries to get across is has nothing to do with sexual urges it's about trying to take control away from someone else
0: Hmm. by the way i would still encourage anybody who's listening here now or in the future to uh, go to um uh, and find the stubbornness of words because she lays out exactly what happened to her and what was going through her mind in that in that period of time. And it really is a remarkable piece. And we're going to she's given us permission to post it on uh, my independence report. So that'll be in the blog there on my independence report. So I implore you to go read that because it can be very helpful. But that's not the end of your story. The end of your story got really good, didn't it?
2: Yes, sir, it did. Um, After seeing the Me Too hashtag and going day by day by day and realizing that it was one voice that started, you know, a chorus of other voices that that helped to save my life, that I needed to use what I consider a second chance. I I honestly look at it as, as a miracle. Um, it was the right thing at the right time. And I decided that I need to use this second chance and to m- make my assault have some sort of positive meaning to give it a purpose. So, um, I decided that I was going to eventually tell my story. I wasn't going to do it obviously immediately. I still had a lot of healing to do and processing to do, but I did reach out uh, to um, the head of Women's March here in Tennessee and told her about my story. And to to be honest, I don't know why I did that. I couldn't tell you why I decided to look her up and, and tell her my story, but I did. And it just so happened that they were doing a Me Too caucus for the January-March of 2018.
0: Imagine that.
2: Yeah. So, again, in in my opinion, another miracle. Um, And asked said, if you are ready and you are comfortable, would you like to facilitate the Me Too caucus? And I was, of course, very nervous. Um, You know, this was only going to be what, three months away from me planning my own death. So I'm like, let me think about it. And I just, the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, you know, I can do this. Because, you know, I need to repay others. And if my story, whether it's at the Me Too caucus or through a radio show or whatever, if it can just keep one person from killing themselves and saying, let me just get through today. And then I'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. Then it doesn't, it's not okay that, that I was sexually assaulted, but again, it gives it purpose. And that's all I can ask for. I can't change the fact of what happened to me, but I can try to turn a very traumatic experience into something good that help continues to help make me heal and hopefully can help others heal as well
0: it's vital that 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 you do the work that you're doing because it's just coming to light now as you know it's just coming to light now so many people from so many years although some people have have uh forgotten it or have put it in a place in their mind where they don't recall it because it was too painful. Right. And they're now getting the to the idea that I didn't do anything wrong. You didn't do anything wrong, Greta. All right. you were doing was walking from the bathroom to your car and you were assaulted by uh, somebody that deserves to be in prison. Um, and it, you did nothing wrong. And yet you carried guilt for years about it. That's wrong. That's our society needs to change that.
2: Exactly. And that's one thing that, that I try to let people know as well. You were talking about, you know, some of the, the stereotypes or the excuses people use for blaming victims, you know, that, well, they were drinking or they were wearing this or that, or they were in this neighborhood or that neighborhood. Um, Another thing that they all too often say is, well, she was just out too late or she didn't want her husband to know that she's stepping out on, you know, whatever. So she's making it up. If, and I don't, I don't know if anybody's a gambler, I'm not, but if I thought I had a 92 to 98% chance of winning the lottery, the jackpot, I'd become a gambler real quick. And that is 92 to 98% of all reported sexual assaults are considered credible, according to the Department of Justice. So it's a very, very slim margin that aren't considered credible. And even if they aren't considered credible, that just that doesn't mean that they're false. There's just something that isn't adding up or there just isn't enough evidence. So I that, think that's something for, for people to keep in mind.
1: We've had such a misogynistic society for centuries. I Really, since we've had a society, you know, men have been in charge, at least in Western culture, and women have been in this subservient place. And so the behaviors are so out of whack and just have not kept up with uh, the development of women's place in this current world. Right.
2: And you it's know. not, it's not just men though. Uh, right. I want to give, I want to yeah. give you men a break because Thank there you. are, there are, yeah. I've heard plenty of women, unfortunately, you know, place the blame on the victim as well. Sure. Um, and
1: men have been raped by men. Exactly. You know, sexually assaulted by men. In,
2: in, in and and there are men that have been raped by women as well. You yeah. know, I mean, it's, it's not as high a percentage. It's approximately one in 10, but it's even sometimes harder for men because of the way our culture is, the way society is, you know, you have to be macho and, you know, this can't happen to you. And there aren't the resources available to men like there are to women. Um, You don't have support, you know, a lot of male support groups for for sexual assault survivors. And that's something that needs to change. Sorry, Kevin.
0: No, I was just going to say, (laughs) <laughs> that if if you're a guy and you call the police because she raped you, and they come in and start taking the report, they're going to say, you. This woman raped. Okay, forget it. We're not even going to talk to you uh, because they're they're not going to consider that to be a credible thing. It's kind of yeah.
1: like the high school kid that has sex with his teacher. You know, right. It's still that attitude.
0: Yeah. So so now t- tell me, I have to ask because we're we live in the Great Northwest, Eric and I. And I've been I've been to Tennessee, and I've been I've been to uh, uh, the South, and the South operates in a wholly different manner than they do in in the on the East Coast or the West Coast, um, because they I have deeply in, ingrained thoughts about the roles of men and women, and and that goes back far longer than anybody's been in our neck of the woods, how did you handle that as a policewoman? Because that there had to have been some moments that it was not comfortable for you um, because of the stereotype that uh, existed at the time.
2: Yes. In fact, the very first day out of the academy with my training officer, um, we were getting into the car and he's like, I'm going to teach you everything you need to know. I'm going to grade you fairly on your evaluations, but you need to know right now that, I don't think women should be in be in police work. And it was like, okay, <laughs> well, this is going to be an interesting two months. Um, it, it, it worked out, luckily, um, where by the end of the two months, he's like, you know, you're all right. You're going to make a good officer. But, yeah, it started from the get-go. Um, I, for the most part, was pretty lucky um, because I... I'm down to earth and I'm not confrontational, but I'm also a Scorpio and I'm stubborn. So if you start giving me, you know, a hard time, I'm going to stand up for myself. You know, I'm going to speak up. And, you know, if if some some of the guys were were giving me a hard time, then I wasn't going to, you know, just slink off and get, you know, in the car and drive off. I gave them a hard time right back. And pretty much we learned to to respect each other regardless of gender and had good working relationships. So when something did happen, you know, it was addressed and we all got along.
0: I'm also willing to bet that somewhere in the, in the rumor mill was the fact that uh, who your daddy was and, uh, and that they probably should not, you know, they, because of your daddy, that they had the respect for him as well as for you. Um,
2: yeah, some some of them definitely did. My captain, my first captain, when I got out uh, off of probation, he, he knew my lieutenant did not. And I actually caught some grief for that because I didn't tell him. Um, he's like, why didn't you tell me? And I'm like, why did it matter? <laughs> you know, I got what I got because of the work I did. Yeah, I said, that's all that matters. Doesn't matter who my dad is. But yes, there were definitely people who knew and, and that probably did play into it for sure.
1: Good for you. Now, the organization Silent No Longer. Yes, sir. How does that work with uh, the Me Too movement? Or what is it different about it?
2: Our, okay. Silent No Longer, Tennessee, I started in right after I was the facilitator for the Me Too caucus, Women's March. So I started in 2018. And it started off as just a grassroots group. Um, and we kind of were going with the Me Too movement as far as kind of figuring out, okay, this this is what's happened and where do we go from here? And we did some workshops on strategic planning and then some community education uh, workshops on things such as, you know, the vast majority of, of reported rapes are credible and that it's about power and control and things like that. And... Eventually, I started realizing that, you know, we have other organizations that are doing those types of things uh, in and around Nashville and, and throughout the state. But we don't have organizations that are specifically trying to work in rural areas that are trying to establish support groups for male victims or that are trying to help victims share their story in ways that they're comfortable. Most, if you talk to most people, it's like, you know, I want to share my story. Oh, cool. We have a vigil coming up or a rally coming up. Would you like to speak? Not everybody is comfortable speaking and, you know, standing in front of a microphone and sharing such a painful and intimate story. Um, And that's okay. So what we're doing is using some of the things that we learn for me too, as far as, you know, sometimes creative outlets, such as songs and poetry and things like that are helpful. So we're establishing programs, creative expression programs that include poetry, um, songwriting, dance, painting, uh, mixed media art, so that people have options. If they want to share their story, but they don't want to stand up and, you know, come on a radio show or stand up in an auditorium and and tell their story, they can paint it. You know, they can write lyrics to a song and, you know, hopefully have somebody record it. They can make a statue, you know, whatever. And that way they are still sharing their story, but it's in a way that they feel comfortable sharing. And I think that's also really important. And I know I'm, prob- I'm being a yakky duck and not giving y'all a lot of time to talk. Oh, but... gosh,
1: no, no, this is terrific.
2: <laughs> um, this is terrific. One of the things I think is very important for people to know, because if, if it's someone that you care about and they do come to you and say, this has happened to me, usually our first instinct, anytime a loved one comes and says something bad has happened, is you want to fix it. That's just human nature. You know, oh, I'm sorry. Here, let me let me bundle you up, you know, and, and fix it for you. You can't fix it. None of us can fix it. You know, I couldn't fix my own assault um, other than finally dealing with it and processing it. The best thing I think for people to realize is, one, if somebody tells you that they've been sexually uh, a victim of sexual violence, believe them believe them. That's the first and most important thing. The second is to listen. And if they pause for a minute or 10 minutes, let them, let them pause. Let them gather themselves and take the time they need to say what they need to say. Um, because you have to remember that they have just had control over their own body totally taken away from them. And it is vitally important that they be as quickly as possible, begin to gain some control back. And just wow. by letting them li- just by listening and giving them the time they need and letting them say what they want to say is an excellent first step for them to do that Wow, that's great! and, and let them, do what they think is right for them. Um, it Again, we want to fix things. So, you know, you can say, well, do you maybe want to go get medical treatment? But don't say you need to go get, we need to take you to the hospital. We need to call police. That is their call. Um, they have to be the one in charge of how they handle it. Now, obviously, if they're, saying, you know, if they get to the point where I was and they admit that to you and, you know, and you think that they're a danger to themselves, obviously you have to intervene. But otherwise, let them do what they need to do to process it. Because if you start trying to take that control away from them, you're just re-victimizing them again. And it's most likely triggering, you know, thoughts of the assault. So... That's something I want everybody to try to keep in mind.
1: That is so remarkable. That is so remarkable. I saw an interview recently. Uh, it was a TED's talk. And I thought this was absolutely fascinating because it was a woman that was raped by a boyfriend at the time who violently raped her. You probably have heard of this. He violently raped her. And uh, they broke up after that. He moved to Australia. And about 10, 12 years later, she contacted him and said, hey, asshole, I want to talk to you. And he manned up and they talked and they arranged a date where they met Mm -hmm. in a public place and they talked it out. And they ended up uh, doing these uh, presentations to people that included the rapist and uh, the rapey about their perspectives about that night. Mm-hmm. And this guy was just so humbled. You could see that his world, I wouldn't say that he suffered as much as she did. And I will say that it's probably rare that uh, somebody in his position accepts the responsibility to the depth that he does. Mm-hmm. So it's fascinating to me, this subject in the way that uh, what you're doing provides a place for someone to take ownership of their lives. And if people that have raped watch this, maybe one of the effects is that they will take ownership of what they're doing and be able to put it in the proper perspective as well.
2: I did some research back in the spring of this year um, for a project that I'm working on, kind of looking at um, what victims of sexual assault feel how they, how they perceive justice within the criminal justice system. And one of the things that I noticed, and I also interviewed law enforcement officers. And one of the things that I noticed very glaringly was the vast difference, the polar opposites of what law enforcement and victims consider justice. Um, I even, even as a victim and a former police officer, was thinking along the more institutional type things, you know, an arrest, a trial, a conviction, you know, jail time, things like that. And that was what the officer, you know, law enforcement officers were saying. Victims, however, were saying more like, you know, what's important to me and what I consider justice is being believed, um, feeling safe reporting to the police, um, being listened to, and being given options. That was that was the main things that came out of that research. And you were talking kind of about the two of them getting together and, and talking. That's something that has they have discussed too, is being able to find out why you know, why me being able to, not all of them, not everybody wants to, you know, face their attacker, but there were some that they wanted to figure out why it happened and because they thought it would help them heal. And there were some that really wanted to try to help the attacker so that they could get, so they could stop this behavior so they could get treatment and and stop it and understand um, that it is about power and control and and help them turn their life around. And that was surprising to me. And I guess I was looking at it, as, as opposed to a victim, looking at it as more of a law enforcement perspective. And that was very enlightening and something that we will definitely continue to research and continue to incorporate in our programming at Silent No Longer.
1: Well, you're the perfect person for this. You've been on both sides of that coin. Yeah, you bring a lot of vision to the movement.
0: Thank you. By the way, we've been we've been talking with uh, Greta McLean. She is former police officer, and now she's in she's the head bottle washer in charge of Silent No More, which is a nonprofit organization in Tennessee, and this goes worldwide, Greta, and it goes throughout the United States. If somebody is touched by your message today and would like to get in contact with you. Is that okay?
2: That is absolutely okay. If you would like to learn more about Silent No Longer, Tennessee, you can go to www.silentnolongertn.org. And you can also email me at contact at org And I will get back to you um, if you want me to call you, if you want to set up a Zoom interview or uh stream yard, whatever, I'm happy to do that and help you in any way I can.
0: And if you're somebody that is feeling like she was in 2017 and feeling like there is no way out and the only way out is to kill yourself, uh please go contact somebody today. Don't wait. Don't contact somebody today and get some help. Um, and if, if you can call Greta, that would be great. But if she's, if she's, if she's across the country from you, there are uh, suicide prevention hotlines and things in town that can help you. And uh, to remember, it's not your fault. You hadn't, you, you, you were an unwilling participant in a horrible act. And, uh, you know, that's, that's really all you can say. Greta. You know we're running to the end of our time together, but uh, I would like you to uh, have a moment to um, get on your soapbox or your or your duck, and <laughs> if if you want to, to tell our audience anything that you would like them to know.
2: Mainly, as as Kevin was just saying, if you're struggling with thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. If you don't know where to reach out, um, you are more than welcome to contact me. I can get you national hotlines. I'm more than happy to research uh, different uh, resources in your area. If you're not in Tennessee, I'm happy to do that for you and I will get that information to you. Um, We are Tennessee based, so our programs are just for Tennessee, but I have in the past been able to give information to anyone who's willing to or wanting to start a similar organization in their state or the, or their community. Um, I'm happy to tell you what has worked for us what hasn't um, and get you in touch with with people who can help guide you uh, in your particular area and the main thing that I want to reiterate is please believe victims um, support them Listen to them, but don't push them. Let them heal in the time that they, you know, need need to heal. And remember that it is not your fault. We have done nothing wrong. We are not the ones to blame. The only person to blame is the perpetrator. And it doesn't matter what we've wore or where we were or whether we were drinking or not. We have the right to say no, and we have the right to control our own bodies, and when someone takes that away from us, that is their fault, not ours. So just please remember that, and remember no matter what, your voice has power, that you do have self-worth, that you are valued, and that there are people out there who really want to help you if you need help.
0: Greta, thank you very much for that. Before we go, though, I got to ask you a question. Sure. In um, do you find that the situation in uh, rural Kentucky is worse than in urban Kentucky, and that some of the some of the things that uh, are expressed by folks that have been in the backwoods for a very long time and generationally that it, it's a little tougher for women to number one to come forward. And, uh, and two, to understand that what's happened to them is not right. He means Tennessee. Well,
2: did, I say, did I say Kentucky? I'm that's okay. They're <laughs> right next to each
0: other. What, what exactly. Can
2: I exactly. We're kissing cousins down here in this house. So. Um, yes, it is much harder in rural communities. That's why another one of the things that we want to do uh, in Tennessee, and I encourage people all over the country, wherever they are, in rural areas to um, consider starting peer support groups because a lot of times in rural areas there aren't uh, sexual assault centers who have support groups are primarily in urban areas they may have satellite offices but um, try to you know there's free online training um, and mentorship to become a support group facilitator so if you are a victim Or just someone who wants to help victims look into that and try to start support groups or programs like silent no longer you know whether have them come over you know rent out the the community center or or the church or something and and sit and talk have a support group do art whatever Um, because there just aren't those options in rural areas around the country unless there's somebody willing to stand up and create them. And we need more people to do that.
0: Excellent. That, that's just awesome. By the way, in, in your name, silence, silent, no more means no
2: yes. more. Right.
0: Let's say it's, nope. it's great. So somebody actually highlighted that. So I just wanted to point that out. It's been great talking to you today. Uh, one of these days, I would love to invite you back when you are the head of a national organization well
2: (laughs) thank you very much um i'm not looking that far forward i want to really get silent uh off the ground first um but if that happens then yes i'm more than happy to come back anytime you want
0: Uh, just just be careful because i told i had an actor on an actor director on and i said you have to come back after you've been on the red carpet well, he has to come back because he was on the red carpet. So, But oh, yeah. so when you're head of the national organization, you're going to have to come back and talk to us.
2: Absolutely. I'm happy to.
1: You're absolutely your terrific, Greta. It's just, well, just, just, just been a joy to hear what you're doing.
2: Well, I want to thank both of you for, for having me on the show and allowing me the time to, to share my story and, and reach out to other victims and survivors. And hopefully I've been able to help someone.
0: That's all any of us can ask, and that is, that is uh, that's basically God's work if we can help somebody, even if it's just one.
2: Absolutely, absolutely, and y- and y'all have helped me make that possible, so I do appreciate you.
0: No problem. If you'll stay right where you are, we've been talking with Greta McLean, and we are gonna and we need to go, but go look at Silence No. More silent no longer. longer. Silent no longer. I was looking at, but I also want you to uh the name of your uh the poem that that's there the, the uh blog that you wrote. What was the name of that again? Greta?
2: The organization it's silent no longer. Yeah, it froze up for a moment. I apologize. It's silent no longer T as in Tom N like Nancy uh, dot org. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook using Silent No Longer TN.
0: And there was, and what was the name of the blog that you wrote that we're going to post on uh, My Independence Report? It was here, now it's gone. Don't know where it went.
2: Uh, stubbornness of words.
0: That's it. That's it. Go, go, read that. You know, it it speaks volumes. So, Greta, thank you so much. If you'll wait right there, we'll be right back. Thank you, Greta.